Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for joining us. And just a reminder for those of you who may be new to the podcast, that this podcast, we talk about people's journey and any kind of loss they've had along the way. And then also any dreams they've had of the deceased loved one after they've lost. And so I'm doing the intro today and I know Jade's not here. We have Sean actually uh, from a remote location somewhere in the world. Sean, welcome. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I wouldn't can't be there live to sit next to Joshua Black, but I am calling from a couple hours away. I had some business to attend to, but I'm here and happy to be here to ride along with this interview. All right. So here we go. So we have uh, an amazing guest on, Diane Murphy. And so Diane is a family support coordinator for Donate Life Queensland in Australia. She is an accredited mental health social worker with almost 40 years of experience in counseling, employee relations, practitioner, consultant, and mediator operating within the public and private sectors, including a guest specialist lecturer at Australian Catholic University. Having worked with state government at universities, VET and TAFE, and in private practice, Diane's professional experience with individuals and groups has focused on enhancing performance and well-being. Diane has provided bereavement counseling for families of Donate Life over 17 years and has extensive knowledge of issues relevant to families on the grief journey. She works from a strength-based and values-aware position in her counseling coordination and role and she's also a big fan of grief dreams and we talked a little prior to this about just grief dreams in general and she has lots to say on it so i'm really excited to have her on so diane welcome to the show joshua thank you lovely to be here so uh, we talk it's funny when we talked uh we talked specifically on sort of these grief dreams and hopefully we'll get to that but i want to know more about your journey so how did it like begin because you've been doing a lot 40 years you've been in sort of the the counseling and employee relations sort of um department and so like where did it all begin like what did you want to do when you first started compared to where you are now yes joshua i had a a, a very clear sense that um, social work would be my career and um, and I was always drawn to casework and counselling as the dimension of social work that I was interested in and uh, as opposed to you know community work or community development and um, so I've been counselling and and running groups throughout my career in different positions and um, and so um, it's been really a satisfying career, you know, being able to uh, meet people and uh, help people. And the the uh, bereavement element sort of was a natural progression that, that sort of came in the last sort of 20 years, I'd say. And what, what facilitated that change? So why did you go to the bereavement side? Um, I think I'd started um, pe- started providing grief as an element of my practice, and also Donate Life had started referring to, uh, their clients to me. And at that time, they had in Australia uh, a refer refer out system. So um, 
if the patients contacted the agency after the death, then they could be given um, my name or several other counsellors' names as their as their counsellor, and then then we would just sort of invoice the Donate Life Agency for that service, um, and then. So I'd been doing that for about 10 years before I started working with Donate Life. And I'd been finding that people, the, the doctors that I practice with in the private practice would start referring people to me following a bereavement and were satisfied with that service. And many counsellors, I'd say, um, don't feel that that is... Um, I think because it didn't fall in specifically into the mental health realm, they wouldn't put it on their itinerary of services. So uh, grief counsellors in, um, in Australia became a little bit uh, specialised, I'd say. And Mel McKissick was the expert in Australia and he was based in New South Wales and he would often refer people to me as the Queensland grief counsellor. So that was a great honour to provide uh, services for for Mel McKissick. That's really how it started. Yeah, that's that's an amazing uh, journey to start with. Did you? What was something that you really enjoyed about the bereavement side of it? Like, what did you like about that? I think what I liked about it was the the fact that many people presented concerned if their bereavement was normal, and wondering if they were grieving normally. Mm. And so I uh, found that the normalising function of, of bereavement became sort of a, an, an element that, that was very important to, to reassure people that, that their journey was, was normal and their responses were normal, but also to, to acknowledge and validate the um, derailed feeling that people feel during grief. Most people are surprised at their own reaction at how difficult it is to cope in that raw, acute grief stage. And so, what is Donate Life? So, can, uh, can you give us an idea of what you're actually, who you're actually serving? Yeah, Donate Life is the corporate name for the Organ and Tissue Donation Agency in Australia. I'm, I'm aware that there's various states in the in the United States of America that also call their donation agency Donate Life. And um, the uh, so I'm not involved in taking the consent from a family at the at the point of death at the hospital. I'm providing a bereavement follow-up service to our bereaved families um, in the weeks and months, and if necessary, years following the death. And in fact, it was during um, this full-time work because I started working for Donate Life full-time. I left my private practice and came to Donate Life uh, about seven years ago. And uh, the working with bereaved people all day, every day, uh, I started to notice a pattern um, in what they were presenting in terms of uh, their grief dreams and uh, that this was an element um, of their bereavement. And... Often they would be distressed at the fact that they'd had grief dreams. So these families are ones who um, not only have lost their loved ones suddenly, but uh, been through the donation process, that, and which is a 
which is a sub-journey to the process for them where they've, been, they've met with a doctor, they've consented to organ and tissue donation, they've had to wait and sometimes up to another 12 hours or, or even another day for, for the donation to be able to occur so the coordinators can get all their ducks in alignment so that the transplants can occur. And, um, and families often say that this time has given them more time at the hospital with their loved one, which they um, later on appreciate. At the time, everyone gets very fatigued and it, it can be very tiring for the families. But we, we provide um, in each state in Australia an ongoing um, follow-up service. And my service here in Queensland is not time-limited or session-limited. So it means uh, families can access the bereavement as part of their normal follow-up and, and not feel that they've got to access it straight away. That's actually really amazing. And it's an added, I guess, benefit for their loved one actually donating their organs or tissue. Do you, in your sessions, do you find it like, I guess, rewarding for them to know that their loved one donated uh, some tissue or organ to help someone else? Oh, most definitely. The families, my big question when I came here was what impact does organ donation have on the grief journey? And, um, and I have uh, been able to answer that with my research and with my experience with the donor families. And I found that the, um, the grief journey is not shortened or lengthened. However, it is enriched and uh, it's enriched by the donation by being um, altruistically joined to the human family by the opportunity to have helped other people and also it leaves families feeling very proud of their loved one um, as a last act, um, or at last altru altruistic act they've been able to help other people um, with uh, life-giving transplants and um, sometimes there are questions, of course, that, that families might need answered. They might um, ring back and say, look, I, I just want to know what time, you know, the heart stopped beating when they're in, in theatre. Uh, or they might uh, feel some sense of responsibility for having uh, contributed to the decision to turn the life support off. So those sort of, those sort of questions, um, it's very important those families get back to us and, and have those questions answered um, and we can link them with the with the treating doctor at the time and they can you know go over any of the medical instances of the death and um, but families do find it very enriching that that donation um, was was part of their loved one's journey and uh, and it's this humanitarian altruistic act that sort of seems to connect them and and enrich their grief. That's pretty that's pretty interesting, and it it made me think of different types of rituals, funeral rituals that people perform that might be similar. I know uh, a new modern one is people uh, are looking into burying their loved ones in a forest and having them kind of rise up in the form of a tree like they plant a tree on top of it and then the person's you know obviously body decomposes and it becomes part of the tree yes. you know that's kind of more of like the metaphysical idea of like giving back to humanity but this is like yes. you know even more uh concrete 
Yeah, most definitely. I mean, um, what what we'd like to see as a donation agency is that this request to a family um, becomes normalised in end of life considerations. And um, but it is most definitely like that, and 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 it doesn't detract from any rituals that that families wish to perform. You know, whether it's a burial ritual, burying the body or burying the ashes, and returning the body to the earth to um, to you know mother nature or to god or however people think and um and that's the way i work when i say it, you know my my bio there was i work within a values based i mean it's it is very much values based um the donation and and death work you know bereavement work is you know you very much have to work and you want to work within people's beliefs and value systems and um and that's not a hard thing to do in fact that's that's what makes it enriching for the counselor to learn and hear about how people think about um about death and possibly afterlife and uh, in terms of donation many people feel as though by um transplantation a part of their loved one lives on i have a question diane have you had a situation where maybe someone's loved one has passed in maybe a negative light and by having, you know, the family donate the organs or the individual wanting to donate the organs, does that change things for them? Mm. It's a really good question, Joshua, because um, uh, it, it, it's it's a very complex question because you've got those people, for example, from the Buddhist faith that if something bad happened at the time of the death that may affect their beliefs uh, about the spirit and whether the spirit will... Um, reincarnate peacefully uh, or whether the spirit will be troubled um, but also it's got questions um, about uh, you know normal deaths which occur such as motor vehicle accidents and um, here in our western society you know motor vehicle accidents and motorbike accidents and pedestrian accidents still occur and um and it's and also don't forget suicide. I mean, there's a rate of suicide deaths, and in those deaths, when the families consent to donation, it's actually um, a really those families say that it, it gives them something to be proud of, and uh, something good has come out of their tragedy. And even those those deaths through motor vehicle accidents, the families say, you know, if donation didn't occur, it, it would have just been a senseless death. And that is really difficult for families who've lost someone suddenly to have these senseless deaths because making sense of the death is part, is that initial part of the grief journey, as we know. Yeah, I never actually thought of that. That's so interesting because, yeah, like after suicidal death or death by suicide, yeah, like you are wondering like what benefit could this have done? And then because you're you're donating the uh, the organs, it can actually make it make something so I guess tragic and almost meaningless to something a little bit more um, uh, meaning making, I guess, uh, from it all. That's so interesting. I I want to ask, who gives consent? Is it the person before they pass, or is it the family um, after the person's passed? Yeah, uh, in Australia, it's uh, we have uh, an opt-in system where people can register their their wishes on the Australian Donor Organ Register, uh, and that 
is a legal consent if there is no other next of kin. And if there is next of kin, then the family are always asked to give their consent and that provides the legal consent at the time of death for donation to proceed. And, um, and the reason for that is that we always want to consider the needs of the living before the needs of the dead. So we want, we want people who are the family members to be comfortable with their decision to proceed with donation. And mostly people do want to uh, honour their loved one's wishes if, if they have registered or have spoken with them. And um, most people want to just honour their loved one's, uh, all of their loved one's wishes, whether it's a donation decision or any other decision for end of life. And what are maybe some of the reasons that you've heard why people maybe may not want to donate? Is it just like laziness or is it just, you know, they want (laughs) to, you know, like they just want to be intact as a whole because that means something to them? Yeah, yeah. Um, We know quite a lot about why people don't consent. uh, And that because there's been some international studies and there's also been... um, an Australian study called the NEAT study, N-E-A-T-E, and um, and that elucidated some of the reasons why people don't want to donate. And and wholeness is definitely something that is embedded in our in our Judeo-Christian, um, and for that matter, the 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 traditional religions, Islam and and Judaism, um, where the idea of a quick burial, you know, at sunset. Was is is still the important element and and burial whole and so families that that um, are understanding of the need for transplantation have to understand that uh, those burial traditions can still occur normally, um, but it it needs to be um, uh, delayed a little bit for donation to proceed and um, and they do need to think through this idea of wholeness and I think people with the advent of cremation are understanding that the body will, will become ashes and go into the earth in any case and that um, and and the principle of helping others um, is a principle that all of the religions of the world um, place as a primary concept of consideration and therefore is supportive of donation. But in all religions, you've got a traditional cultural or national-based you know, practice of their religion. And also you've got a contemporary educated arm to these religions that are, that are pro-donation. But just about all religions in the world now have, have put out statements of support for organ donation. There's only a couple. One, one that don't are the Romani Gypsies and the Shinto, Shinto which is a pre-Buddhist uh, religion. And, um, and so people that go through this process do need to think through the idea of, you know, uh, if you've got spiritual ideas, the spirit will leave the body in any case. Um, and, um, and if they're not spiritual, then... Um, the body will will be cremated or buried in any case, so it's an opportunity to help others. Are you seeing that over the years that that's getting better or like the stats are increasing, that more people are willing to go through this process of donating organs and tissue and whatnot? Because uh, it, it just seems like 
as kind of technology gets better as well. Like, you know, we're hearing in the news all the time, someone's doing a, you know, heart transplant or a kidney transplant from essentially a deceased, deceased person and they're functioning pretty well in society. Is that getting better? Are the stats proving that? Definitely. The, um, we've had a uh, national reform process here to the uh, organ and tissue donation sector. It's been going for nine years here now, and we're definitely seeing an increase in, in our donation rates, which is a very pleasing thing to see. Um, it's, uh, you know, we, we put in efforts both in community awareness, in the media, um, we put in efforts in education of nursing staff and medical staff. We've put in a, an, a, an education practice that's um, required for intensive care unit doctors, specialist doctors in Australia. And that's a really pleasing development so that we're helping staff uh, be more comfortable in talking about both death and donation considerations with families at the end of life without without the anxiety and fear that, that used to accompany these discussions. So, yeah, there's a worldwide trend, I think, with community awareness. People are becoming aware of donation and less fearful of having those discussions generally. And that's been the, the, the central push of our media campaign in Australia that we essentially want people to make the decision that's right for them but we want them to discuss that decision with their family so their family is aware of their wishes. Wow. I think it's amazing that you get to work for such a, like, a beautiful organization that uh, gives people a new opportunity of life and to make even more meaning from, from their loss so quickly because sometimes it can take a little longer to develop meaning. So I, I'm, my question is, once the family donates their loved one's organs or tissue, do they ever get like a, you know, a, a sheet that tells them like where it went? Or is it sort of once you donate it, it, it goes off to the abyss? Yeah, in, in Australia, we're a bit different to the USA. We do give families um, a sheet or a letter in their information pack which we send to all members of the family who, uh, who were there at the hospital. We send them a letter confirming their donation decision, thanking them for that donation decision, and we confirm the outcome of the transplantation surgery. So we, we're able to say, well, your, your daughter's heart was able to be transplanted to, a, to another woman, and the lungs were able to be transplanted to another young woman and the kidneys um, went to a man and a woman and so that's how we we put it in the letter we don't we in Australian law we are unable as professional agencies because we provide a medical service and this is a medical procedure so we can't provide the identity under our law at the moment of the recipients and vice versa and um, uh, and so um, we can give uh, the donor family um, an update on how the recipients are doing upon their request. We can say they're doing really well. You know, they've gone home and they're doing well now. And, and by the same token, if the recipient, in an unusual circumstance where the recipient may have died, we give the family that honest information as well because that may represent a secondary bereavement for the family. I like that. I really do. I like how 
uh, you get confirmation that it actually it worked and the surgery went through. I think it's amazing. I think it's, it's so amazing. And so along your journey so far, that you've been here in 17 years, did you have a loss prior to starting in the bereavement field or was has your loss been after? Yeah, I certainly have had my own losses. Um, and, um, you know, we, as you're aware, we've got mortal losses and non-mortal losses. And like most people, I'd I had my share of non-mortal losses, which was moving, moving home and moving from my childhood house and leaving home, and and then uh, I had uh, an experience where I had um, I was married and I had a, um, a, a miscarriage at 14 weeks, and that uh, was my first close-up experience of a significant loss. And as a counsellor, I realised, you know how. Um, how attached I, you, as, as a counsellor and as a mother or a potential mother I became you know, at a different dimension with my own loss understanding the impact of that loss on myself and, um, and the attachment that you have with an unborn child and how very little there was around in those days I mean I'm talking you know, t- 25 years ago um, of um, how miscarriages were not really recognized as a bereavement and so that was really the beginning of my my personal experience of loss and then some years later I lost both my parents within the same year <clears throat> and um and losing both parents within one year is not an uncommon experience for many people because um often our elderly parents you know support each other in life and when one dies the other really feels the absence of the other and and um, doesn't cope so well and that's exactly what happened to my parents and um, and I also as a, my personal experience of, of losing both parents within the same year was um, was uh, I realized that it's much worse than you think as a professional you know it's it's something that you really um, don't anticipate you think that grief is a normal and it is a normal human experience but you don't anticipate how vulnerable you feel during that time yeah well after like multiple losses like so quickly and then to see who was it that died first was it your mother or your father yes my mother died first and uh, she had been suffering from heart failure and um, it wasn't unusual for her to have admissions into hospital. She'd have a night or two, and um, they would um, send her home, and uh, and she'd go on. So we we weren't ever surprised with a hospital admission, but she actually died in hospital, and um, and she just died peacefully in her sleep, and um, and that was a, a pivotal experience for me in term in terms of. Um, seeing a, a dead person because I hadn't uh, actually witnessed someone who had actually died before then and also I think I'd had a conversation with my mother the day before where I had um, we'd, we'd, it was a normal conversation where she she said oh they're keeping me in hospital for another night and so don't come and get me today come and get me tomorrow you know it was one of those sort of conversations so I said okay I'll be up at ten o'clock tomorrow morning to get you and take you home, and um, and she died through the night. So, 
Um, I spent a little bit of time with her body at the hospital um, and um, and as my father did and my siblings also. And, um, and it was actually my mother that I had the grief dream about. So in, and, and I having difficulty whether it was the first week or the first few weeks, but I, I dreamt um, I dreamt that um, my mother came to me. The um, it was all sort of darkness, but she came to me and we embraced. We had this beautiful hug. It was very tactile. I, I remember the feeling of her skin, um, and um, and it was very motherly, like a normal embrace and a normal feel. And I remember waking and du- no, so, sorry. During that dream, we had this lovely hug, and um, and I and I then realised I realised that she had actually died, and I was, you know, I didn't, I don't know why I did this, but I felt compelled to tell her. I said, Mum, you know, you've died, don't you? And um, and she, <laughs> and then she sort of she was a bit distressed when I told her that, and she seemed to then just evaporate. And at that point, I woke up from from the dream. So that was my first experience of a grief dream. And obviously, in the morning, or when I woke from that dream, it was very distressing because you feel I, I had wondered if I didn't tell her if we would have been able to um, have more conversation and um, and more hugs. And but but when I woke up, I realised that there was a very palpable sense that I had spent time with her. And I had actually embraced her, actually touched her. So it was very, very real. And um, and in the weeks following it, as I came to terms with this dream, I realised it was a real gift because it was, you know, it represented real extra time with her. And it was only um, many, um, many years later, or a few years later, that I came across the term a visitation dream and I don't have any particular spiritual ideas of of what these mean to other people but to me it just meant the reality of this grief dream that I'd had and um, and in my practice now when people say that they've had disturbing or distressing grief dreams ra- rather than as a, many counsellors just say oh that's really terrible I've been able to to stay with with that distress and and explore that distress with clients and allow them to see the gift in their grief dreams. I like that. I'm I'm glad you had such a a positive experience having it, especially with that hug. And it's interesting Mm. with, you know, you telling her that she's dead and and then Mm. like evaporating because I've seen that a lot in different people's dreams. And for the most part, in a lot of these dreams, I don't know if you've noticed too, they tend to be very short. So I don't know if you, if I think even if you didn't mention it, she would have said she'd had a go anyways, you know, like it's, it's like these dreams tend to be shorter for whatever reason. And it's just like, what is the event that actually makes it come to a close? Yes, I think that's a very curious question. And, and, um, and I think you're right. I mean, many people describe this uh, the person that has died having to say they have to go. And that's repeatedly an experience that I see my clients that they share with me. They, they're encountering their loved one. They're really enjoying the extra time and the contact, whether it's a conversation or, or whether it's holding each other. 
and um, and then usually the bereaved person that uh, is the one that is told by the deceased person that they they have to go. And it was my dream was very short. It was. I've also had a couple of others where I've dreamt of my father, and they're more much more sort of everyday dreams. And he's usually in a motor vehicle with other people, with myself. And I hop into the car and I and he's there and, and I say, oh, Dad, you're here, hello. And he says, yes, love, you know, and then we just sort of do our little drive somewhere and, and that's the end of the dream. And, and it's nothing sort of out of the ordinary, no particular deep and meaningful conversations. And, and do you have, like, like, your mother's, the dream you had with your mother versus father, did you have similar sort of emotions when you woke up in the sense of how you see the dream? Or is were the feelings a little different? Oh, quite different um, between my mother and my father dreams. Because when I wake up from my father dreams, where he's he's just in the car with me, um, I just it's it's just a lovely feeling. It's sort of a peaceful feeling. I just think, oh, I just sort of saw Dad last night. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, just like as an adult that you might have sort of you know collected your parents in the car, or they collected you, and you drop each other off somewhere. You know, and uh, they're very lovely experiences. Um, my mother dream it was it was very distressing uh, when I woke up from that dream. It was like waking up from reality to the nightmare. So real life becomes the nightmare when you're in that kind of acute bereavement, and and you sort of have this little sense of unreality, which was the real, which was the real. It's soon, it's soon abated, you know, as you wake up and you have breakfast and you realise what, you know, which is your reality and this is the reality. Do you feel like some people that we've talked to have felt like they're maybe their loved one is maybe watching them in some sort of guardian form? Do you feel like one of your parents might be doing that or do you feel that? Because that, they're different experiences that you're describing. So I wonder if that might be a situation that you feel is that maybe one of them's a guardian and the other one is is maybe just had an experience. Mm. Looking back on the grief dream with my mother, um, I feel it was a very important um, dream of resolution for both of us. She was someone that didn't particularly want to die or wasn't peaceful with her, the idea of, of dying. And so... Um, the, the it gave me that dream gave me resolution. You know, it, it, I think it sort of helped her settle and helped me settle. You know, and um, and um, the idea of a of a guardian, I think, is something that you want to believe in the early stages of grief. It's something sort of you're looking for. You're looking for signs, um, and um, and look, it's a nice thought. I don't particularly believe in it. Um, and I suppose you could, you know, it's how you interpret your dream too. And with my father sort of just being around, I mean, I could say, oh, look, he's he's just keeping an eye on me, you know, or that's the feeling um, that I get. I don't particularly have a strong belief in a guardian or a spirit keeping an eye on me. I'd love to think that was happening <laughs> um, rationally yeah, yeah, just, or, yeah, or just, emotionally. Just because, yeah. like you said, everybody yeah. has their own interpretation of what they extract from these experiences. 
Um, so just curious as to what it was. And, and again, like you're, you're right, everybody, that's what you believe and that's, that's how you feel about it. And that's the benefit you're gaining from it. And, and, to, go, and to go on with that too, it's like, it doesn't, doesn't seem to really matter if you believe in if it's a visitation or not, it can still be very comforting and help you on your, in your grief process, which I think is fascinating for on, on many different levels that your interpretation of the dream afterwards, you know, like it can have an impact if, if you're looking for a sign or something, but even if you're not just that positive feeling of seeing them like healthy again, you know, and happy can, can do wonders for you as you move forward. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I notice in my client population, um, you know, many are seeking, you know, confirmation of an afterlife. And and if that's what their dream does or their grief experience does for them, then that's, that's, um, that's lovely, you know, and I completely respect that. Um, and um, actually, I'll, I'll just share, a, when my mother died, an, an interesting little experience, my sister slept in her bed for a couple of nights after the death because she had to come to Brisbane from from another town and um, she had a, a visitation experience of our mother touching her foot as a reassuring act, you know, and, um, and my sister's certainly not religious or spiritual in any way, form whatsoever. And, but again, she experienced this as a very comforting experience. And that's, this is part of the, um, the grief phenomena. I think these grief dreams or these, the, this grief phenomena of being touched or feeling as though you're hearing their voice, um, uh, you know, they're, they're part of the grief phenomena that does give comfort. Definitely. Yeah, that's, yeah it's, it's amazing. What else have, have you sort of seen in your practice? Um, I know some people talk about that I've other counselors I've talked about. It's like people aren't willing to share unless um, the counselor brings it up. Do you find that too, where like you have to ask about these dreams before they actually get shared? A little bit of both, Josh. Um, there is, I think, in our culture. I don't. I, I think in Australia, there's definitely a, a bit of culture that says um, you shouldn't. You know, firstly, you shouldn't grieve very much. Um, which is the uh, an inheritance from our British stiff upper lip culture, um, and and then secondly, you know, um, if you share your distressing dreams, they are a sign that your grief is distressing. Um, so, for goodness' sake, don't discuss those. However, in the counselling, in the privacy and confidentiality of a counselling room, I find that more than fifty percent of my clients. Um, or on the telephone, if I'm just following with them up on the telephone, they will share by their own, um, they'll say, oh, I've been having terrible dreams. Um, and they weren't intending to discuss it, but when they say that to me, I say, can you tell me a little bit about the, the last dream that you had or a significant dream or a very distressing dream or a nice dream? Are you happy to share something about that? So they'll initially tell you that they've had these dreams um, without the intention, because people dismiss them. People think, well, dreams are irrelevant. They're not going to help me in any way. But my experience is when you do explore them, in fact, there's there's wonderful material there for healing. There is a, there is a message sometimes that's extremely healing. 
um, an example of one man that had lost his young son um, in a motor vehicle accident. Um, he was, an, I think, he was about 19, and he dreamt he, the father and mother had to come to Australia from another country. Um, and on the way, he dreamt, or the night before he had to get on the plane, he dreamt that his son was coming towards him with his clothes folded and giving them to his father as as a as to to care and protect for his things and and to say as a goodbye um gesture and for the father this was very very meaningful because it was like the son saying goodbye so i've got many many stories like this that that grief dreams obviously they're going to be sad or distressing when you have them but they represent um, a communication of goodbye or closure for the family. Yeah, I think and it's amazing that you're asking the questions and you're, you know, providing a safe space for them because that's what, you know, more people need to do. And there's just not the research out there to, I think, for people who work in counseling or thanatology um, to really take this matter seriously. So I'm glad you are. Do you find a lot of your not your clients, but other practitioners uh, like like hearing about this topic or are they distant because of the lack of training and research? Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, fear um, that um, working with dreams is about interpreting people's dreams and there's a lot of fear that dreams may um, dwell on the fringe of the spirituality domain. So psychologists and social workers and, uh, are generally very afraid of um, going there with a client. Um, and, um, and I was too. Um, and really, um, I, I think the piece of literature that really opened my eyes to how this could be a normal phenomena of the grief response was I read um, uh, Darian Leader's book, The New Black, and in that book he mentions that about 50% of his bereaved clients had um, grief dreams. And, um, and I thought, wow, here's a psychiatrist that's, that's noticing this phenomena as well. So that really um, gave me validation that this was something that I had been noticing and um, in my client population, and um, and that I perhaps needn't be afraid of it. Wow, well, good for you! I gotta say, it's amazing, and it's amazing to hear, like I said, we we talked uh, bef before this, and just amazing on what you're doing, um, allowing people that space to share and talk about uh, all their dreams, not just the dreams that they have with their deceased loved one, but any other nightmares and and stuff um, that occur. Because uh, I said, like, a lot of people aren't willing to go there. And, and if they can share it to you, well, then, you know, that's that helps them on their journey. Um, when I'm talking about actually, I want to actually mention, too, uh, you said like 50 percent of people. And I'm finding just in my research that it seems to be a lot more. And so within the um, uh, adult sample I, I did with the spousal loss, it was almost it was over 80 percent, 85 percent had a dream of their loved one and pet loss it was 71 percent and i just finished one on miscarriages and 50 percent um, of people had dreams of their uh their baby did you ever have a dream of your baby that uh didn't make it 
Yeah, I think I did. Um, you know, it, it de I definitely would have put it down in the nightmare category, you know. Yeah. And um, and if you ask me the details of that now, unfortunately, I can't recall. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure I had a, some dreams that I would have woken up distressed from and felt that it was definitely a nightmare about my, my loss of the baby. Oh. Yeah, and um, very much um, didn't talk about that with anybody. Oh. Well, good for you yeah. making it through, you know. Um, but yeah, that's a that's a hard thing. Like I I I can't understand what that would feel like. Um, but that's just one of those um, deaths that you know just would just like really rock you, especially if you want to be pregnant, if you want to have a child. And I don't know like how you work with those people, uh, how you work with that grief. But I'm glad you're using uh, your own experiences to help others along the way. Um, because, you know, especially with the miscarriages, that is very disenfranchised still. Um, it's a little bit better than it was before, I'm guessing. But it's still disenfranchised, and a lot of people still don't talk about it. And right. especially uh, these dreams. Uh, but yeah, like the one, what I'm finding too is that they are um, uh, negative. So, like, they have these positive ones that you would see sort of with, like, uh, in the adult population. Like, they're comforting, they give them, um, they say they're okay or, or anything, something like that. Or they, you know, they see him again um, playing or they're pregnant again, smiling. But yeah, there's a lot of nightmares and um, more so negative dreams than mm -hmm. in any other type of loss that actually um, uh, had, I guess, life in, in the waking life. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it's very interesting, but you're right. There's this extra sort of um, extra sadness that comes when people sleep. And especially with miscarriages that can, like uh, the one... The one I was thinking about, there's, there's a ton of them, but the one was uh, an individual, this woman uh, was sleeping, and so she's dreaming that she was walking in her hall, and she was going down to the stairs, and the baby fell out of her, and then it started tumbling down the stairs, and she went to try to save it, and by the time she got to the end of the stairs, it was dead, and just like those kind of reflections, or like uh, dreaming to get about how the miscarriage happened, and, and all the blood and stuff, so it's a it's a serious thing that's going on that affects people's lives and i'm just happy that you know you're you came on you can talk about it a little bit to give it some a little more validation yeah so yeah so thank you for that and then we're just gonna go to the next topic right away and that is what dream would you want to have so if you could so you know what dream would you want to have would you want your parents to be together would you want them to be separate would it be something else um what do you think <laughs> yeah um so your question, I think, is relating to what would I want to have about deceased people yes, in my life? Mm -hmm. um, okay, that's opening the gates, Josh, to... Um... <laughs> is that a Pandora's box? <laughs> yeah. It's a lovely um, Pandora's box full of possibilities. <laughs> it's opening the gates to um, allowing your, your wish fulfillment. <laughs> <laughs> and um uh you know i i don't know that i've allowed myself to go there mm. and um yeah sort of seeing people together talking to me like my parents if, if you know if they were both in the same dream <laughs> talking to me that 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 would be very nice you know it's not something that i'm hanging out for <laughs> 
Um, just to, if I can just make a comment about your lovely research on the um, miscarriages, um, I think you know there is a statistic in Australia that one in four pregnancies ends in a miscarriage. Wow. So in the medical world, it's very much you know very much normalised that this is a nat part of nature. This is a natural thing that nature's doing and. Um, and um, and what it doesn't do is it doesn't sort of account for the very important psychological adjustment that woman has to make because when she firstly um, allows herself, to, you know, wishes to be pregnant, allows herself to get pregnant, she's attaching to that to that infant um, before she's actually pregnant in making the decision or having the wish to be pregnant and have a family. And um, and that 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 attachment, um, you know, actually starts long before the woman ever actually gets pregnant. It it happens when she's a very young woman and probably starts menstruating and starts imagining herself as a potential mother, and makes decisions about whether she wants to have a family at some stage in her future. So the attachment, you know, women start seeing themselves as a mother and and in that role, and so. The grief when they lose that that child is really a uh, um, very deep part of a woman's um, psychology and and a, and a father as well for that matter. And um, because you know they they're imagining themselves as parents, and so um, the the dream the dreams and the grief allows them to integrate. You know that that sense of themselves: will they ever be a parent? Will that ever happen? I was going to say, Diane, um, that's a great point. And in my life, I've had friends who have had miscarriages, and I don't think that I've uh, talked to them or, or consoled them the way that I would if it, if they had given birth and had the child live and then die. And that's a lot of it was I didn't know how to act. I didn't know um, my place in that situation or whether I should approach the person or if the mother wanted to talk about it and hearing that from you it made me think that like it's it's still just as powerful if not more powerful for people who have gone through miscarriages and they need that support and you know it makes me want to go back and have these conversations with friends who've who've had that yeah that's right i, I mean i remember uh, i had a lovely doctor um and he handed me a card of a psychologist and um, and I never rang the psychologist, you know, because it was something that uh, I think very much I had an expectation of myself that um, it was a biological loss and, and therefore um, there was hope for uh, future pregnancies and, and, um, and I would absorb it into my experience, my medical experience. But but the journey that I went on um, as an individual uh, was, was a very alone one actually looking back and um and yeah I, I i've spent lots of time with other mothers that have lost a pregnancy and i don't know that it's worse i mean i think you you can't say any one loss is worse than another such as a mother going full term and having a baby yeah. die stillbirth i think you know these are all really powerful um devastating sort of experiences and um but but I think the, the the thing that's common to all child loss is is this um, at very deep and primary attachment that that you have with even the idea of being a parent, let alone actually being the parent. You know.
Well, all right. So I guess last, we're just about to wrap up. So lastly, mm. what do you what do you what do you want to do with the the rest of your life? So how long do you want to work with the bereaved um moving forward? Okay, I, I probably see myself as having arrived in this position more like a vocation. Um, and I feel very comfortable in it, and um, and it's it's like sort of the the pointy end of my career. And I use all of my work and experience with all other areas like post traumatic stress, and um, and you know child protection and mental health. They all sort of come together in this work. Mm. And um, so I'm I'm actually thinking. Um, if the job lasts, I might stay here oh, <laughs> till I retire. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I would like to think that's sort of about, you know, seven years down the track or so. Oh, nice. Mm. That's good. You're not getting yeah, burnt definitely, out. Well, you definitely know end, end stage career. <laughs> <laughs> you're doing amazing work in Queensland. You know, we really respect that and what you're doing in the country of Australia. Um, these are important things for us and, and you're having these conversations and you're making it a safe place for people to talk about not only loss but also dreams. That's something that you know we're interested in but we want to thank you for being able to give people that opportunity to talk about it because what something we've noticed is that you know that's the start is just talking about it. You know a lot of people they don't share their dreams or even with spouses or, or children and they hold it with within themselves and it's something that needs to be talked about so just want to say very thank you very much for doing that thank you very much joshua for giving me the opportunity and uh it's been lovely talking with you across across the oceans <laughs> yes uh, it's been a pleasure it really has and is there any kind of um media handles that you have like do you have your own website or uh instagram page that you want anyone to follow or email address if they have any questions uh, look, I'm an old di- technology dinosaur, <laughs> so I don't, I don't have a website, and um, t- I do have an email, and and certainly would be, you know, happy to um, share that, and that's my um, my uh, donate life one. Very happy to um, to have that shared and and talk. That's uh, Diane D I A N E dot Murphy M U R P H Y at health dot qld dot gov dot au okay that's great thank you so much and uh hopefully you get some uh some feedback on this episode and uh maybe people will maybe tell you some of their dreams that they've had and because i know you like hearing about that stuff so uh just for us uh just check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic if you have facebook you can join the grief dreams facebook group uh, you can also check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. And this podcast can always be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean.com, and many other podcasting platforms. And if, you had, uh, if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast yourself, please email us your story and what you'd like to share at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. And once again, with love and gratitude from us to you.